Okay. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, TeachingAmericanHistory.org and the Center for Civic Education's We the People program are pleased to present this six-session webinar series, We the People, a Foundation for Teaching the U U.S. Constitution. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is the leading online resource for documents, lessons, multimedia, and programs for teachers of American history, government, and civics. TAH.org's programs are unique in that they are all focused around primary documents only. Tonight's program will consist of a presentation of about 45 minutes, followed by a question and answer segment. I will take note of the questions posted in the chat window throughout the program and will ask those of Dr. Lloyd after his presentation. So as you're watching, please come up with questions and post them in the chat window for everyone to see. Everyone will be emailing a continue emailed, excuse me, a continuing education certificate verifying your attendance in each session. There is no need to do anything, and you'll receive this within a week of each session. Finally, if you're interested in graduate credit for attending all six sessions, you can do so by writing a lesson based on at least two of the documents Dr. Lloyd uses during the series. Please email Jeremy Gripton, whose email is now in the chat window, directly for more information. The presenter for the series is Dr. Gordon Lloyd. Professor Emeritus at Pepperdine University and Senior Fellow at the Ashbrook Center. He is one of the leading scholars of the American political thought and Ashbrook is proud to have partnered with him to build the nation's leading online resource on the American founding at teachingamericanhistory.org. Dr. Lloyd, thank you for joining us tonight and for the next few weeks. The floor is yours. Thank you, Kelly. The second session that we're dealing with has followed questions as its guide. How did the framers create the Constitution? And within that framework, there are three sub-questions that we want to take a look at. The first is, why did the Articles of Confederation prove inadequate to the first attempt to focus a national the second is, compare the New Jersey and Virginia plans. And thirdly, a widespread public debate over the ratification raged for almost a year. What was served by that debate? So those three questions are to guide me in the following brief presentation. And I would encourage you to ask questions in order for me to respond to the issues that you have in mind, rather than simply for you to sit back and me to pontificate on this. Let's take a look at the first question. Why did the articles prove inadequate to the first attempt to form a national government? Well, it all depends what you wanted from the articles. In one sense, they were not inadequate. They performed exactly what they were supposed to do, which was to, to accomplish very, very limited ends, general welfare and common defense, leaving every single thing else virtually to the states that joined the Confederation. We have to remember that the Articles of Confederation were, uh, the Articles were actually a wartime document signed by 13 colonies to become an intercontinental arrangement primarily to defeat the British and to keep people, keep the states 
together during that difficult time. So, <coughs> excuse me, there's a certain sense in which the articles did not fail. The British were defeated. But if you look at it another way, once the treaty was signed in 1783 to end the war, then there was a great, great chance that the 13 states who, that came together in order to fight a common enemy and defend themselves would go their own ways. That has been historically true then and subsequently. So it took people like Washington and Madison and others to raise a challenge. Is this what we want to happen? That what we were in war, namely a united America, will now in peace become a disunited America. The articles could not sustain the momentum of a united America. So in that sense, those who wanted a stronger, united, more continental bond understood that the articles could not accomplish that. So the question, why did the articles prove inadequate to the first attempt to form a national government, to summarize, the answer is they did prove adequate if we're looking at a wartime document and limited resources. They did, the articles did not, did not attempt to create a government, nor did they attempt to create a national government. If you want a national government, then you have to scrap the articles because the articles presuppose that you had 13 pretty much independent states that joined together for limited purposes and the union could only do those things which were specifically and expressly stated. Moreover, the union did not have the power to regulate interstate commerce or to tax. They had to beg. They had to, what do I mean by beg? They had to send a, re a requisition. Please, Virginia, please send money. So in a sense, the, if, if the goal is to form a national government, by definition, the articles are going to fail because they did not create a national government. So let's summarize that first question again. Why did the Articles of Confederation prove inadequate to the first attempt to form a national government? Answer, they did not prove inadequate to f in the first attempt to form a confederation. They failed to attempt to form a national government because they didn't create a government. They created a loose alliance like the League of Nations. That was the issue. Is that what we want from America, says George Washington and James Madison? The two sub-questions within that, that bigger question is, in what ways did the Articles of Confederation dis demonstrate a distrust of a strong national government? Well, I think the answer is yes, it demonstrated a distrust because the tradition showed that never in the history of the world could you have a strong, widespread national government covering, get this, three million people over an Atlantic coast and still remain free. 
So the distrust was what happens to liberty if you go intercontinental. The way in which you secure liberty is by remaining local. The Articles of Confederation preserved localism and small communities because it did not create a united America. It created a United States. So in what ways did the Articles demonstrate a distrust of a strong national government? At the core, because what was not wanted was a national government, whether it was strong or weak. The Articles demonstrate that what was wanted was a loose alliance for limited purposes, and the real action was going to occur at the state and local level. And the Articles protected that by only giving the Union very, very specific powers. And if you wanted the Union to do more, which Washington and Madison wanted, you would have to amend it in some fundamental way. Because any change of powers in the Articles had to be approved by all 13 members. What you see is what you get. You want to change it? Total unanimity is required in order to change it. The next sub-question is, what were the historical and philosophical reasons for the distrust of strong national government? To what extent do these reasons exist today? Are they justified? Why or why not? Well, I would really like to leave that one largely open to the questions which you might have of me when I finish my presentation. But since that's a question on the agenda, let me take a crack at answering at least part of it. The historical reasons and the philosophical reasons is that, to repeat, there's never been a strong national government. There's also been a free national government. Any strong national government has been in history uh, bureaucratic or militaristic. So there's this distrust of the centralization of power over a large country. Where does that distrust come from? That distrust, distrust comes from philosophical understandings like Montesquieu, Aristotle, that small communities are the best, are the best way to preserve free associations. People know each other, people trust each other, they look out for each other. The more extensive the territory, and the, which means that in order to get compliance, you're no longer relying on the goodwill of the people. You're going to have to rely more and more on some strong military or bureaucracy. So there's a, those who love liberty are going to have, shall we say, a philosophical distrust for a strong national government. Historically, strong national government, uh, whether it's Britain or Rome or whatever, tend to be expansionist. They tend to go overseas and secure colonies. And if you're a colony wanting to be free, there's a certain problem about wanting to have a strong national government because you're not inclined to be colonial. So in terms of summarizing that particular issue, 
What were the historical and philosophical reasons for the distrust? Liberty. Tradition and philosophy indicated that small communities were better disposed to preserving people's liberty by relying on their personal virtue, by relying on the personal virtue of the people rather than having to rely on some central administration to enforce the laws at the outer edges where people are not connected with the ongoing uh, situation. So something has to be done, does it not? At least so said Washington and Madison. Why? And I think this gets us into the, uh, the second area of our concern. The second area is compare the New Jersey and Virginia plans. But before we talk about New Jersey and, and Virginia plans, we have to figure out why was the Constitutional Convention held in the first place to take a look at the articles. There are two sides, and this is, is sort of reflected in those two plans. One side was more cautious, prudent, the New Jersey, what came out to be the New Jersey folks. And what they wanted was to tweak the powers. The problem with the articles was not the structure. There's nothing wrong with 13 equal states. Anything that changes 13 equal states should unanimously agree. The problem is that Congress lacked two essential powers. One is the power to regulate interstate commerce. And the second is the power to impose taxes. Because it lacked the power to impose taxes, it had to ask for requisitions. Therefore, money was uh, shall we say, insecure in coming from the various states. Because it lacked the power to regulate interstate commerce, it could not, Congress, could not create an interstate commercial republic, an economic union, a free trade area. So you had various trade barriers and different weights and measures and coins. So I think pretty much all across the country, with the exception of Rhode Island, there was this feeling that one of the inadequacies of the articles was the lack of two powers. If we could just add those two powers and do nothing else and go home, that would be an improvement in the situation. We would have a regular source of revenue for the federal government, and we would have the opportunity to create a free trade area. Leave the structure alone and go home. That basically becomes the New Jersey. That basically is the New Jersey plan. So the difference between the Articles and the New Jersey plan is not structural. The difference between the Articles and the New Jersey plan is the addition of these two powers. So that represents the cautious, prudent way of approaching the situation. People like Washington, the Virginians in particular, people like Washington and Madison and Randolph were persuaded that what was wrong or inadequate about the articles 
wasn't simply the lack of two powers. It was systemic. There was a structural problem at the heart of the issue. And if you add those two powers and don't address the structural issue, you, have, you might as well not even bother. Well, what is the structural problem? The structural problem is that the states, regardless of the size of their population, regardless of the size of their territory, are treated equally. And the people, there is no such thing as the people of America. So where the people fit in, they fit in as, as people of each state, so that each state then is represented equally like United Nations or, the, or like the League of Nations. But there is no direct connection between the government of the United States and the people of the United States. So structurally, what the Virginia plan attempts to do is to alter that situation. So, and create a government. So let's get us back to this original question. Why are the articles inadequate for national government? And the answer is because they don't want to create a government. The Virginia, nor does the New Jersey plan want to create a government. It just wants to make it in a more effective alliance. But the Virginia plan is to create a government. A government of what? Of the people, by the people, for the people, by teeny, tiny, little steps, but moving in that direction. Example, instead of having one branch articles, New Jersey plan, Madison and the Virginia plan proposed two branches. Then we started to move towards a government, a first branch and a second branch. Well, what is the first branch supposed to do? Represent the people. Well, what is the second branch supposed to do? Good question. And that becomes part of the conversation. But at this stage, the importance is that we're trying to set up a government, a government of checks and balances. There are no checks and balances in the New Jersey plan. There are no checks and balances in the Articles of Confederation. In the Virginia plan, there is an attempt to move toward the people and away from the states, first branch, and to check the first, to check the first branch. At that stage, it's unclear what's going to happen in the second branch. To create an executive with the idea of potentially being independent. Articles didn't do that. You have like a chief administrator. The state constitutions did not create a strong independent executive. The governor in the state constitutions between 1776 and 1780 were, in fact, the, 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 the governors were weak. Um, they didn't have the power of veto. Massachusetts did. Only Massachusetts permitted the election of the governor by the people, not because every other state distrusted the people, but because <coughs> they wanted the legislature to control the executive. So the executive was chosen by the legislatures. So one of the issues that had to be considered is if we're going to create some form of national government, are we going to create some form of national executive? The philosophical and traditional understanding was 
A strong executive, example, the monarch, is inconsistent with freedom. What the historical record had shown within America is that the lack of a strong executive at the state level showed the weakness of relying exclusively on a strong legislature and just having the governor or the executive as an errand boy. So that became a big issue. If you're going to create a national government, you're going to have to find some role for an energetic executive who, who is, or, or the institution that is, consistent with the basic principles of liberty, which basic principles historically and philosophically have been grounded in the legislative branch. There is no room in the Articles of Confederation or the New Jersey plan for an independent judiciary. The only state that had some kind of independent judiciary was Massachusetts. Well, there was some argument about it in New York, but Massachusetts did have some kind of independent judiciary. And so the philosophical and historical tradition that the Americans were working with is the articles are an association of pre-existing states. Two, these states are going to be Republican, and by that we mean basically legislative-dominated with weak governor and non-existent judiciary. To create a national government means that you have to create a government and then make it national, which means that you're going to have to shift power from the states to the nation and then create a government. And creating a government means creating three branches. How, in part of number two, so what are the strengths and weaknesses of each plan? The strength of the New Jersey plan is it concentrates on increasing powers. The weakness of the New Jersey plan, it concentrates on increasing powers. What is the strength of the Virginia plan? It concentrates on altering the structure. That is by reducing the states and, in, and changing the structure of, of the situation. What is the weakness of the Virginia plan? You guessed it. How much power is this central government going to get? It was granted the power to do all those things that the state governments were incompetent to do. And who would decide competence and incompetence? Congress. Now, that situation isn't going to last. Some kind of compromising or agreement has got to be struck because I mean, you got two opposite sides in this New Jersey and Virginia plans with their strengths and weaknesses. The strength, part of the strength and weakness of the Virginia plan is that it is novel. Part of the strength and weakness of the articles of uh, the New Jersey plan, part of the strength and weakness of the New Jersey plan, it is recognizable. How would I explain the principle of proportional representation and why is it controversial at the Philadelphia Convention? Well, proportional representation prior to the Philadelphia Convention was done at the state level. There was no proportional representation under the articles at the intercontinental level. It was one state, one vote, regardless of the size of the state, and more importantly, 
regardless of the size of the population. The radical structural change to the Virginia plan was to introduce proportional representation, the people, into some new structural national government. That had never been done before in America and certainly had not been done before across the world and liberty be secured. Why was it controversial? It had never been done before. What are we creating here? The great compromise, according to our state hearing questions under number two, the great compromise resulted in proportional representation of people in the House and equal representation of states in the Senate. Exactly. So something had to give. You cannot have either the Virginia plan completely, which rules out the states, or the New Jersey plan completely, which rules out the people. And if you're there and you're dealing with 39, 55 representatives, and you're not Nero, and you're not Cicero, and you're not uh, uh, Moses, and you have to deal with the whole notion of consent, then you have to deal with conflicting opinions, and some arrangement and accommodation has to be made between the two sides. And the American breakthrough, I mean, it's absolutely wonderful. Instead of looking upon it bipolar, is either representing the people, Virginia, representing the states, New Jersey, why don't we think outside the box? Why don't we say, for certain purposes, we are a nation of people. For other purposes, we are a nation of states. So there are certain things that we as Americans want to do as a people. And yet there are other things that we as Americans would not, we don't want to act as Americans. We'd rather be Virginians for certain local purposes. What's wrong with that? Well, it has never been done before. All right. So why don't we create this new feature? And that is exactly what they did. The great compromise resulted in proportional representation of the people in the House and equal representation of this in the Senate. Sub-question to that in the state hearings is what have been the consequences of this compromise? Well, the consequence is that we become a nation of people and a nation of states. And that's a compromise which is very difficult to maintain because it has within itself the tendency to go one way or the other. One way is to forget the states and all power go to Washington, nationalize everything, make everything uniform. Instead of saying, for example, that a woman can have an abortion depending upon the state in which she resides, make it uniform. Instead of saying that gay people can get married in, this, in, in a certain state and not another, make it uniform. So there is a tendency and a natural tendency to make things uniform across the states and make it a federal issue. On the other hand, there is a tendency, potentiality to say, wait a minute, we didn't sign on for conformity. We signed on for limited purposes. 
And if you keep trying to uniform, make everything uniform and conform, we're leaving. We don't like it. We shall secede. So one of the consequences, which is the question, what have been the consequences? One of the consequences is there's a tendency to make everything uniform and to suggest that voting rights, et cetera, et cetera, in one state differing from another state is unfair or undemocratic, and we should make it uniform. Another tendency is to say, we didn't sign on for this. We want our localism. We want our differences. We are Southerners or we are Westerners or we're Midwesterners and we're regionalists and we didn't sign on for those kinds of things. And so the two extremes is the total concentration of power in Washington. If you want to uniform everything, regularize and rationalize everything. And then the other extreme is that we're leaving. We don't want anything to do with such a uniformity. So one of the consequences you could say is the civil war or the war between the states. If you, uh, those two expressions show exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, is the issue one of rebellion or is it one of uh, imposition? And the other is what we're seeing right now. What, let me pose it in the form of a question which might encourage you to ask a question. In year 2015, what is the role of the states? What are the role of the states? Is there anything that the state should continue to do separate from the federal government? The federal government can bribe, can do all kinds of things to get the states to comply. The question is, is it right? Are there certain things that the states can do perhaps better? Or should we just do away with the states and have one, one nation? And we continue to have that, not in the form of secession or total concentration, but we're still having the issue today of, well, how much should the federal government do or the national government do? See, we're still confused about what we call that government. And then how much should the state's government do? Um, <clears throat> would, I, would you change it in any way? Why or why not? I'm going to leave that to you and the questions. Um, I think my quick answer to that is, is that we have to decide as a people whether we want more uniformity or more diversity in this, not in the necessarily the racial or gender sense, but more diversity in the sense that we in California can do something different than you folks in Washington and you folks in Washington Seattle area could do something different than the folks in Seattle. How much, how much of that difference are we willing to tolerate? Let me give you an example. The, 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 issue, the issue is what if my neighbor, I'm a Californian and I'm living in California, what if my neighbor had... Um, no slaves or one slave or 10 slaves. As long as that person doesn't break my leg or pick my pocket, why do I care? Or is that an American issue? Should that be all across the board? I'll give you another example. What if my neighbor has zero abortions, one abortion, or 10 abortions? Should I care? As long as my neighbor doesn't pick my pocket or break my leg. 
Or is that an American issue? What if my neighbor has no gay lovers, one gay lover, 10 gay lovers? Should I be bothered about that? As long as he didn't pick my pocket or break my leg? Or is that a national issue? That is how I would answer that question on my own, but I'm more interested in how you would say, would you change it in any way? The change depends on how the American people feel about what is local and what is national. So why or why not? What is local and what is national? What can I tolerate? What kind of difference? By the way, the one area where we seem to be able to tolerate a huge diversity from state to state is liquor laws. I say that because I travel a lot. I travel a lot over the weekend, and I see the incredible diversity. No one seems to be upset that we should have one liquor law across the country. We rejected that. The final and third question, before I get to your questions, a widespread public debate over the ratification raged for almost a year. What important purposes, of any, were served by that debate? The answer is the first, the, the, the very first historical and philosophical example of the consent of the governed in operation in the whole world. The consent of the people was necessary in order to ratify this document. So what you see is a pamphlet war, a pamphlet exchange, exchange of letters going on, and also at the same time, elected officials debating. Imagine that. That, that is unique. That ought to be remembered and reflected on, particularly in the 21st century where we have absolutely no confidence that the deliberative process is going to work. So a widespread public debate, good. That's the whole point. Let's have a widespread public debate. Where else in the history of the world have we had a widespread public debate over the ratification of the Constitution? Rage, rage, I don't like the word rage. It took place, rage sounds too much like rage. Uh, it went on for almost a year, not a drop of blood was spilt, no one was hurt. So I don't like the word raged. Um, what important purposes, if any, were served by that debate? Uh, I've given you the most important one. The people were involved in discussing and choosing the form of government under which they shall live. Just first rate. Why did the delegates to the Philadelphia Convention create new rules for the ratification of the proposed constitution, and were they justified in doing so? Uh, there's low ground and high ground for this. Uh, they did, see this becomes a long issue we could talk about. The rule that the convention came up with for ratification is the ratification by nine out of 13 specially called state ratifying conventions, nine out of 13 would be sufficient to put the constitution in motion. Was that a change? Yes. Out of the articles, 13 out of 13 state legislatures had to agree. Under this plan, nine out of 13 popular elected ratifying bodies had to choose. Is that a change? Yes. 
What is the advantage of the change? Low ground? Rhode Island would always say no. So all the time that you've spent trying to improve the situation would be lost because Rhode Island would say no. So why bother? Low ground. So change the rules. But there's a higher ground. And the higher ground takes us right back to the first question. The first question that we looked at was that the articles were ratified by state legislatures. If you want, as the Virginia plan wanted, ratification or support from the people, then you had to go to the people themselves for ratification. Was that an alteration? Yes. So the low ground is Rhode Island would say no. High ground, you need ratification by the people. But do you need ratification by 13? No. Or why nine? Well, you need more than a majority, but less than unanimity constitutionally. Why is that? But you want more than a majority and unanimity is probably unlikely. But what makes nine out of 13 legitimate? That nine can then go forward. That is, if four say no, the four cannot stop the nine from going forward, which has been a problem under the articles from the very beginning. Rhode Island says no, nothing can happen. So to go to the question, why did the delegates to the Philadelphia Convention create new rules for the ratification of the proposed uh, constitution and were they justified in doing so? They created new rules. You can take a low ground because it won't pass because Rhode Island would say no. You can take a high ground. The high ground is at least nine states who want to, people of nine states who want to go forward now can. And we're putting it to the people. If the people don't like it, then we don't have to move forward. And the final sub-question is what role did the newspapers and pamphlets, the media of that time, play in educating the public and furthering reasoned discourse? How would you compare today's media with the media of the time of ratification? Well, I think that the newspapers and pamphlets played an incredible part in, in, in terms of um, making sure that people were informed about what was going on in 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 the uh, in the debates, and uh, a lot of the pamphlets took place during the time when delegates were being elected, and so they were trying to influence the people or persuade the people to vote yes and vote no. And so there was a conversation not only among the elected delegates indoors, but there was a conversation widespread across the country and people were listening and they could read and folks could write and it was in opinion editorials. How would you compare today's media with the media of the time of ratification? That's difficult. First of all, we have radio. Second, we have television. We have Twitter. So we have we have certain um, mechanisms which the those delegates at that time uh, simply didn't have. But at the same time, I think it's important to recognize that it's not just entertainment. It was important. The citizenry were civically engaged and civically educated. I think part of the problem today is our citizens 
tend not to be civically engaged and civically educated, but through the media, civically entertained. And with that, I will now open it to questions from the floor. Well, Dr. Lloyd, thank you so much for that, uh, that presentation. We have a, a number of, I think, really good questions that I, I'll go through here as we did last week. I'll start with the first one uh, from a David Monaco. He says, isn't it true that the vast majority of citizens had no interest in American nationhood? In fact, they regarded the very idea of a national government as irrelevant to their local lives and very reminiscent of the British monarchy they had recently rid themselves of. What's your perspective on that? I think that there's a certain truth to that, um, that people who are, yo- who are used to localism tend to stay local. And it takes some kind of emergency or crisis for them to cross neighborhood lines or even state lines. So, yeah, I think I think that people get attached to particular institutions and particular places rather than get attached to abstract principles that seem to not touch their lives. So I would agree with that premise. Yes. Having said that, I mean, having said that, therefore, it takes persuasion and leadership to, and you wouldn't have to do this if it weren't a democratic republic where you have to persuade and get the consent of the government. But if you think that's not good enough, America has an opportunity to create an example to the world, which means How can I encourage you to also think of yourself as an American and not just simply from Arizona? And that becomes the issue. Do I want to be left alone and just do whatever I want? Or do I have something in common? And I think, (coughs) excuse me, historically and philosophically, the premise is I stay local. And therefore, when crisis, then I might go beyond local. Or if some leader comes along and says, we have an opportunity, this is our crisis, this is our destiny, then you start thinking more globally. Hmm. Okay, our next question then, talking about some of the different groups that, uh, that existed then within American public opinion, the, the term anti-federalists yes. seems, to counter, seems counter to the aims of the stated group. When did the term anti-federalists emerge? Weren't they actually pushing for a true federal system with strong and active states to push back against national power? The answer is that is a, uh, my first response is that is an extremely insightful question. We have to make a distinction between attachment to principle and attachment to reputation. Attachment to principle is the anti-federalists were really the true federalists, because they wanted states, they wanted states' rights and limited government. And that was what federalism meant. So they were far from being anti-federalists. They were, in fact, true federalists based on principle. For some reason in the 1780s, and we could go into this, but basically those who did not want a strong intercontinental union who opposed Washington and Madison's efforts to strengthen the intercontinental bond 
came to be known as anti-federal. So what stuck in the name was not that the anti-federalists were anti-federalists in principle, because they were really true federalists, but they became known by anti-federalists, not of their own choice, but because the opposition bestowed that name on them because of their reputation of being anti-intercontinental bonding. So the Federalist Papers are actually the Nationalist Papers in principle, but in terms of reputation, the Federalist Papers wanted a stronger intercontinental. Now you can say, well, I'm just gonna give up now, I'm gonna roll my eyes. But you know what? Naming things, portraying the opposition as naughty, portraying yourself as good and traditional, it's been a part of American politics and Western politics ever since. I don't know how much went on before that, but I mean, when we think of the word Whig today, we think of sort of old-fashioned right-wingers. But the word Whig in those days was against Tories, who were monarchists. Uh, somebody says, oh, you're a Marxist. Marx didn't create the notion that we were Marxists. It was the anti-Marxists who created the term Marxists. So how you name something is part of this whole procedure. And even if your principles are in some one direction, the reputation you acquire is often bestowed on you by the opposition. That's fascinating. I mean, considering how, how we think about in the you know, current events now, how, how public perception and public opinion is shaped oftentimes, how much do we, do we even put, how, how much thought do we put into how much it's shaped by the mere names that are given to different groups and people, the terms that are used in newspaper articles and whatnot. That's, that's really fascinating. I mean, I don't want to get into it, but how do we, uh, I mean, this whole Planned Parenthood, you refer, you refer to them as organs of tissue. It's interesting. It is. Words have power. Words have power. Well put, Jeremy. Well put. And I think that would be my answer to the provocative and very good question that um, and how you frame it. And it's not just simply selling. That's part of it, but that's low ground. It is trying to persuade people, which, by the way, is going to happen in the consent of the governed country. You have to persuade people. So you're going, to, you're going to touch their hope button. You're going to touch their fear button. You're going to touch all kinds of buttons to make them think and uh, rise to the occasion, shed away, shy away. So um, we shouldn't be surprised that in ratification, this is going on. Now, speaking about um, the ratification process and, and preceding that, just the, the move away from the Articles and some of the problems with the Articles of Confederation, in your opinion, what were some of the specific interstate commerce issues that arose under the Articles? Are there any specific incidents that occurred between states that created a sense of urgency or are the problems more generalized over commerce under the Articles? Both. For example, there are boundary disputes once you start ending colonialism, 
and you become a state, what is a state boundary? And how do you know that this is a state and this is not, when in the colonial times it didn't matter, the king would decide or the parliament would decide or whatever. So you got that. And one big solution for that, which is actually amazing in the history of the world, is the creation of the Northwest Territories in 1787, when Virginia and other states gave up inland claims. So those disputes were actually settled peacefully over a long period of time through negotiation. Uh, So land, land is an issue, is as a dispute. And it's always been an issue. I mean, who would fight over the Rock of Gibraltar? Who would fight over the Falkland Islands? Who would fight over Kuwait? It's amazing what human beings will fight over. And land becomes an incredible issue. And so land was an issue of interstate, particularly, this is my land, this is your land, or this is our land. So that, that whole question. In addition, if you're moving from Georgia in the south to New Hampshire in the north, and you're trying to create a free trade area, which did not exist, you're going to have to go through, say, 11 or 12 potential immigration, well, not immigration as much as people, but certainly uh, tariff zones, because each state is raising its own revenue, etc. I mean, I remember in the early days, California used to have an agriculture uh, spot on its on its border, and if you went through, they would check you if you're bringing in vegetables or oranges into California. And if you were, they would stop to make sure that it wasn't contaminated. So if you think, I mean, that's within my lifetime. And so if you go back, there were different rules and regulations and weights and measures. Excuse me. You can think even today, even today, if you go in and you ask in a British pub, can I have a pint, please? I'll give you a pint of beer. But a British pint is not the same as an American pint. It, it, it's different. And so if you're moving from Georgia to New Hampshire, you face different weights and measures. Is that any way to do business Interstate? The answer is no, because you have to recalculate and do everything. Or well, how about money? The European Union decided that the way, but they took them. Look how long it took them, and it's still, they're now about to break apart. They decided to go with the euro. The British didn't decide to go with the euro. Okay, so they can convert from one to the other, and you don't have to do that. Well, in 1787, you had. The British pound was being used and local money was being used. So what currency did you make exchanges on? So that discouraged the creation of an interstate free trade area, which seemed to me that people like Madison and Washington argued was what we needed. And they both knew that if you want to create a national government, which is the whole big question for this hearing today. If you want to create a national government, you have to create a national economy. Hmm. Okay. 
Did I leave you on a confusing note there? No, it's just it's, 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 if you're going, to consider, but you're going it's, from Georgia to someplace else, and somebody says this costs two pounds, is that a Georgia pound or a British pound, or what are we going to do? So that just every single time you have to do that, that takes another five minutes, another five minutes. Is that the way to create a, 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 a free trade area? Is an is a is an ounce of Virginia ounce the same thing as a New Hampshire ounce? Who says an ounce is an ounce is an ounce in the world? A British leader is not the same as a European leader. So this standardization of weights and measures and coining and whatnot is an important element in standardizing uh, trade and creating some kind of free trade area. And then you can contemplate well, if we're comfortable with free trading and free movement of people, are we comfortable with doing uh, uh, one notion that Washington, I mean, people now are having problems with Brussels in Europe. They've moved. Look how long it has taken them to move toward a free trade area. As I say, they're about to fall apart over immigration right now. Because once Germany lets people in, then and grants them citizenship, they can go anywhere. So the other, the other countries can do absolutely nothing to, rest, to restrain or very little to restrain themselves against what Germany has done. Okay. All right, so our next question is about some of the, the structures that are and, and powers and how they're allocated in the Constitution. And, and says, Dr. Lloyd, you mentioned that the House of Representatives represents the people and the Senate represents the states as originally attended in the Constitution. Do you believe that it still represents the states, that is the Senate, or does the Senate now represent the people in the same manner as the House of Representatives? Again, that's a very, very perceptive question. And, and there are arguments on both sides. I will give... I will give the, uh, let me give the side that would agree. No, I don't, because I don't know that um, the person would agree with this. So let me give the two sides and give you my opinion. The 17th Amendment now, which is 100 years now, the, the, the 17th Amendment uh, requires that the two senators from each state be elected by the people of each state. So the question then becomes, is that the death of federalism and the basis and the basic role of the states? A lot of folks with whom I chat say yes. And they will add, some of them will add, and that is a very great shame because it is sort of a, quote, conspiracy, unquote. Very few will say that, but there are some who will. But basically, they think that the end of federalism and the role of the states ended with the 17th Amendment. And then when I try to explain it, well, it's some underhanded deal. Let's leave it at that. My response to that is 
that the key to the power of the states in the federal constitution is not whether the states do the electing, but whether states are equally represented and the states are still equally represented in the Senate. That has not changed. So I think my response is that to, to, to the folks is, is, is said that too much, you've placed too much emphasis on the people rather than the state legislatures electing the, rep, the, the, the senators and not enough attention to the fact that the, the states are still equally represented in the Senate. That's the key to retaining federalism, not the election method, but the representation method. And then I would add, <clears throat> with this kind of underhanded or whatever, I said, you know, think about it. What, would it. what did it take to pass the 17th Amendment? It took two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, and at that time, the Senate was elected by state legislatures. So it took two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate elected by the state legislatures, and three-quarters of the state legislatures to give up the power of the state legislatures to elect the representatives to the Senate. I mean, you can't get more constitutional than that. Maybe they're stupid, but it is not underhanded, and there's nothing conspiratorial about it. It may be suicidal, and it may be stupid. Interesting. Speaking about the Senate, another question, a question that actually just came in, I think is relevant to this. It says, some have argued that the structure of the Senate gives small states a significant advantage. Others have suggested that this poses a threat to democracy. What is your take on this? Well, it does give small states. Yes, exactly. It is a follow, as you quite correctly said, Jeremy, it is a follow-up to precisely what we're just talking about. Um, I wouldn't call it a threat to democracy unless you see the United States as supposedly, hopefully, ideally, a national democracy without state boundaries. Yes, it is a threat or a challenge to a national democracy based simply on majority rule. But it is not a threat and a challenge to a federal democracy, which attempts to also represent the states. So that the Connecticut Compromise, which we discussed earlier, and how it, rep and how it plays out today, is that the House represents, shall we say, the national democracy, <clears throat> excuse me, through the House representation of the people, and the Senate represents the federal structure from the Articles of the New Jersey Plan, and that's who we are, partly national through the House and partly federal through the Senate. If you get ticked off with that, that the Senate is biased towards the states, the answer is yes, it is biased. What can you do about it? Alter the Constitution, amend it. Because, very interestingly, one of the only issues in the entire Constitution which cannot be amended is that no state can be deprived of its equal representation in the Senate without its own consent. <clears throat> so that really makes it sort of concrete that we're both a nation of people through the House and a nation of states 
through the Senate. You don't like it? You want to be wholly a nation of people? You're going to have to work to get rid of the states or get rid of the state boundaries. If you don't like it because you, all you want are the states, you're going to have to secede or you're going to have to try your best to restrain the movement towards nationalizing everything. But that's the compromise. That's the heart of today's discussion, the Connecticut Compromise and the impact which it has had. You know, in, in talking about the, the controversy and the split that precipitated that compromise, um, oftentimes in textbooks, the New Jersey, you know, the competing plans in the New Jersey and, and, the, and the Virginia plans, they're often framed as a conflict between large states and small states. Yeah. Do you think that is the correct way to frame it? Or was the fight more accurately a fight between nationalist or unitary system versus a federal system? How do you think that should be framed to, uh, to students? Uh, again, these questions are very, very good indeed. I think that the question, the main point is national unitary versus federal, because you have, <clears throat> excuse me, people from small states who are <clears throat> nationally inclined, like Dickinson, and you have people from large states who end up being uh, federally inclined as states like George Mason. So I think that the large state, small state description of the convention is a bit too bipolar and simplistic. Although it goes, although, although you will find delegates who articulate the issue in those terms. So there is evidence to support this is large state versus small state. Yes. But I think on the whole, when you look at the 88 days that they met and you try to unravel all the complexity, you have to go to a more complex level. And I think the more complex level is the unitary versus the federal. So, for example, the Connecticut Compromise introduced by Roger Sherman is not, in my mind anyway, is not primarily or exclusively a case for small states. It is a case for states, whether large or small. And that's difficult to unravel because somehow we want this either or, one side or the other, rich versus poor, uh, Christian versus Muslim, Catholic versus Protestant, a small state versus large state, it seems to make things so manageable and capable of interpretation in our lives. But our lives don't work that way. And certainly over 88 days with all these issues, and you change, and the point is you change the issue. If you change the issue, take slavery. Slavery can't be understood in terms of large state, small state. If slavery is important, which it is, then the large state, small state model is only going to work for a certain amount, I'm, I'm a certain, resolving a certain amount. Maybe north-south works if you're thinking about slavery being the issue. If you're thinking about people moving from the east 
which they did think about, and opening up the West to the Northwest Territories, the question is no longer small state versus large state or North versus South. It becomes the new Western states against the established states along the Atlantic. And how do, how do, how do you work? How do you work with that model? So I would highly recommend to teachers that they throw out a, a number of alternatives in terms of trying to understand a very, very complicated story. And while it is very useful to simplify a story, somehow uh, I think small state versus large state is a bit too simple to understand the key. It goes part of the way. And yes, there were delegates who thought that way under certain circumstances and certain issues. Yes, you can find, and I can, I can point it out to you and, and to defend the large state, small state um, controversy. But then there are areas where it, doesn't, where it doesn't seem to fit. I mean, how do you answer the creation of the presidency? How do you answer their position on the judiciary? I don't think small state, large state does that. In fact, North-South does more than, than, than small state, large state. Thank you. I think actually that's a that's a really that's a great a great set of, of things to think about. Some really actionable pieces that can be used in the in the classroom. I have a pretty nitty gritty question here about the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, you. In your opinion, how much damage, if any, do you think has occurred to this whole argument of states versus the national government and their respective roles due to the interpretation of the Fourteenth Amendment as either a substantive due process right? rather than a procedural due process, right? Uh, I, I, was the question with the damage to the states? I think it was, it's, the way it's phrased, this is, um, the, I think it's the, the damage to the states, rather the, the yeah, yeah. So it's a damage to the states. The answer is yes. The right. damage to the states is by moving from procedural to substantive is a damage to the states. I mean, I could end it at that. The answer is yes, I agree. But the question is so deep and profound that I would want to add something. It's not just a damage to the states. It's a damage to the whole deliberative process. And it underscores a very, very unfortunate position that we now seem to adopt widespread that we live under a constitution, but the constitution is whatever the Supreme Court says it is. So that the fact that the Supreme Court has moved from due process to substantive process is not only a blow for the states, it's a blow for American representative democracy. Okay. I've got a couple other questions here that I, I, I think will, will fit into this overall context that we're, we're working with here. Is it, do you, talking about the Constitutional Convention itself, do you think that the secrecy element was necessary in 1787? And do you think that anything close to that would be possible today if there was something on the same level of what was done in 1787 going on now? Uh, I would hope that the secrecy would be still a, 
available today despite the media's self-interest in transparency. Um, I mean, I don't see how you could have negotiations in the National Football League, the National Hockey League, in business and labor, etc., without some element of privacy or executive sessions. There are time, there's time to talk, and then there's time to disclose. So I don't see secrecy per se as contrary to the democratic process. What I do see as contrary to the democratic process is if you leave it at secrecy. In other words, if, if the convention, having met in secret, said, this is it, and imposed it without going through ratification and debate in the pamphlet war and everything else that we've discussed today. If they had said no discussion, no nothing, no transparency, no such and such, then I would say secrecy is bad. But what they decided is secrecy is necessary to create some kind of bond of discussion and congeniality so that people can change their mind without having to press down on them all the time. And then there's a time for discussion. I think, I mean, a time for decision. I think what we have lost is the distinction between a time for discussion and a time for action. Secrecy is terrible when you're dealing with a time for action. You need transparency. In discussion, if you say, well, we want to have transparency, what we have discovered, certainly recently, is people who talk to the cameras. It's not that they will speak honestly and openly in front of everybody. They'll just say what needs to be said. So that I don't see how you can deal, do away with, you know, can we chat? I mean, free or just just the two of us? Can we chat and see what we can come up with? I mean, there's a whole bunch of politics which is not nasty and disgusting simply because you're meeting behind curtains. The real nastiness is if it stays behind curtains and no one has the chance to say no. That's what bothers me. Not in and of itself secrecy of meeting, but if you have that's it, folks, you're out of it. That's what bothers me. So I think there's a role for secrecy in negotiations. See, see the word secrecy really sounds conspiratorial. If we were to change it, words, words are so funny. If we were to change it to privacy. Honest, open discussions. Look, Obama and Putin talked for 45 minutes in private yesterday. Do we have any idea what they said? Well, some undisclosed person who didn't want to remain anonymous said that they have a great, great private talk. Well, fine. Let them have a private talk. What I'm interested in is what they do with it. Maybe they have to meet in private without all the cameras looking around. Otherwise, they won't talk. So, again, I'm not opposed to the idea of chatting and negotiating, etc., in private, in secret. But I do think I'm opposed, well, not only do I think, I know I'm opposed to leaving it there and not having the plan which you come up with subjected to uh, examination, reform, amendment, rejection.
which is open and not secret. Interesting. Thank you. I, I have, uh, in the interest of time, I have I have one last question. I know there are some other questions in here, but just in the, again, in the interest of time, I have, I have one last thing I'm going to ask, and then a, a few short housekeeping issues to uh, to wrap up for this evening. Um, this is a question. I, I'm really glad that uh, that one of our teachers asked it. It's one that I had been asked by my students year after year, um, and it, it, it it's phrased something like this: What caused Rhode Island to be so oppositional? What is it with what is it or what was it with Rhode Island? What what can what can be brought to students to help them understand why Rhode Island was what it was? Roger Williams. It's a, it's, it's an honorary state. It's, it was well known as Rogue Island. They were very happy as a small republic, handling it themselves. They were self sufficient. They didn't need anybody else. Why would I want to join such a union? Why bother? Now, there was a substantial minority in Rhode Island who thought that was a very narrow, particularistic uh, position, but they did not prevail. Um, Rhode Island represents, in some way, the, the notion that, <laughs> that just because there's a movement to join doesn't mean that we have to join. And I think students need to realize just because there is a movement to belong doesn't mean that everybody wants to or has to belong. There are um, eccentrics in the room. There are eccentrics in politics. And Rhode Island was eccentric. I don't think there's a problem with being eccentric except if the eccentric then has a veto of, of what everybody else has to do. And that's what Rhode Island had under the articles. Under the Constitution, Rhode Island could be eccentric as the heck it wanted to be, but it couldn't have a veto over what everybody else did. And I think Rhode Island had it both ways. It could be eccentric and stop everybody else from being non-eccentric. Now that is really eccentric. <laughs> Interesting. Well, thank you. Thank you again so much for uh, for this uh, this program. I think you, your presentation is outstanding. The questions that we had asked were were great this evening as well as last week. A um, couple of housekeeping pieces, as I said um, last week, and I just pasted into the chat window to everybody a URL to blog.teachingamericanhistory.org. That's our blog where we are each week. I'm posting the archive from the previous week. We had some technical problems earlier last week that prevented me from getting it done before today. We'll have tomorrow tonight's program up before the end of this week. So if you go to the blog, you'll see a post for last week. And what I'm going to do is for each of the six sessions, I will create a separate post. It will appear on that blog a few, few days after the program once I've processed everything. And then once all of that is done, once the whole series is done, I'm going to take all six sessions package them onto a single page on teachingamericanhistory.org, and we'll send out an email to everybody so that you can, you can have easy access to all six sessions, the audio, the video, um, related files, and, and things like that. Um, and so finally, before we close this evening, 
I'm going to ask uh, if Bob Lemming from the Center for Civic Education, whose audio seems to be working now, would like to say a couple of words about um, their side of this uh, partnership and this program. Bob? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Absolutely. Loud and clear. Yeah, I'm on video. I don't know if you've got that up or not. Uh, I just want to again thank Professor Lloyd for his outstanding uh, look and discussion of these uh, hearing questions. Uh, I hope that the teachers uh, find this uh, useful and that uh, their students will find it as useful as well. That's why I'm glad that you're able to record these. I can imagine that some of what Gordon Lloyd is saying uh, would be great fodder for classroom discussion uh, in the next few weeks uh, during, the, during this uh, fall semester. Uh, it's been a pleasure so far to, to work with, with, with you guys. Uh, you know, the center has been in business for a long time of uh, producing great professional development. This is another step in that direction, I think, as well. And so I'm, I'm pleased to be involved in this, uh, uh, these, this six-part series and obviously encourage the teachers to come back next week and uh, get involved with Unit 3 uh, and uh, have those questions ready. I, I really like that part of the discussion. Uh, I love listening to Gordon Lloyd, but I think that um, when he gets these intriguing questions from the teachers, it adds a lot to this particular webinar. So thanks for everybody. Uh, who got questions in, and, and unfortunately, I'm sure we can't get to everything. Uh, but uh, have a great night, and uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And thanks again, uh, Professor Lloyd, and again, the, uh, the Ashbrook Center and, and um, teachingamericanhistory.org uh, for being a part of this. That's a, great, that's a great collaboration between the Center for Civic Education and you guys. So everybody have a great night, and see you next week. Thank you, Bob.